there are times where I I'd say to myself, uh, enough, enough now. Things 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 are not going to change. Um, basically, you're you're banging your head against a brick wall. But then I remember the last phone conversation I had with Sharon, and that always brings me back to stay going because I know someone will listen eventually. Someone will take family seriously eventually. It was Christmas morning 2008 when something out of a nightmare visited the Whelan family. Sharon Whelan was a young, loving mother to two beautiful children, seven-year-old Zara and two-year-old Nadia, both of whom were in bed waiting for Santa to arrive that night. But in the early hours of the morning, evil postman Brian Hennessy showed up at Sharon's home in Wingap, County Kilkenny. He raped her and strangled her to death before setting fire to her home. That blaze would also claim the lives of Sharon's two little girls. In this episode of Shattered Lives, we spoke to Sharon's heartbroken brother John. This year, John finds himself having to write to the parole board for a third time, urging them to keep his sister's killer behind bars. He spoke candidly in this interview about his family's ongoing grief, their fight to keep Hennessy in prison, and his hopes to fix a broken justice system. This is Shattered Lives, and I'm Paul Healy. Thank you for listening. Yeah, so John, thank you for speaking to us. Really appreciate your time. If you don't mind, I'm I'm just gonna go back to how this all started for you as a family. If I could take you back to 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 Christmas Day, two thousand eight, and uh, how how you heard the news uh, about your sister. Uh, yeah. Well, um, we had a uh, we had um we just actually woken up. We just got up on on Christmas morning, and uh, our our boys who were uh 10 and uh three at the time were obviously excited christmas morning up nice and, and early and, and, and down they went and we opened up all the presents and all that and we had the, the cups of tea and the hot chocolate and what have you like and we we're just preparing for for christmas day with we'd, we'd people coming over to to spend christmas day with us and all that and um i just uh, i nipped upstairs then just to have a shower and um as I was getting dressed, I could hear Sandra downstairs. I could there was a commotion kind of going on downstairs, so she started calling at me to come down. That my mum was on the phone, and she was, in, you know, she was pretty upset and and hysterical. Is 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 what Sandra said to me, and she couldn't make out what she was saying. So I came down, and um, all I could make out, mum saying was like the Sharon's house was on fire. There's been a fire. There's been a fire, um, and. I was trying to stay as, I suppose, as calm as, as possible and try and keep mom as calm as possible and say, like, you know, look, you know, uh, did they get out? Maybe they did get out. And she says, no, no, this, they don't know where they are. They can't find them. They can't find them. I said, well, maybe she went up to um, our aunt, uh, Eileen, who's just literally 100, 200 yards up the road. Maybe said that she's gone up there uh, and ran up there with the kids, you know, did someone check? Um so mam says no john there there she's not up at eileen's we did we did all that and um next thing dad was just after being brought back up from the the house and uh unfortunately he had got the or had seen them being taken out of the house um three local uh three local men risked their lives to go into the house which was on fire and and brought the three the three bodies out um and only for them we, we would have we would have no case they wouldn't there wouldn't have been a case so that's how we got the news and just up to, up up to that point it as far as you were concerned this is a, a, a an accident or something it was a tragic fire there was no initial obviously the indication in your mind wouldn't be this is this is malicious you're just thinking this is this is a tragedy exactly paul yeah yeah, that's that's the very thing we were thinking of. Um, uh, it just it, when when the when it finally landed, that the the the, the three girls were gone. Um, our minds started to go to well, how did this happen? And like you said, we were preparing or, or, or trying to come to terms with a tragic accident, whether it was Christmas lights, candle, fireplace. Whatever it, whatever it might have been, um, but the, I don't know. There was looking back on it now. There was always something in the back of my mind niggling even before we got the news that because Sharon was so careful, you know, 
um, with with the girls, like you know that I said, you know this this doesn't sound like doesn't add so, up. No, no, she was so she was so careful and had a routine uh, about you know, and the, the girls' safety was also a priority. So for me, it just it, it was kind of a gut feeling uh, at the time, and I suppose it was only the day after when we um, what was the second day? I'm not sure now. That we got where guard liaison officer came up to us and told us that they're they're no longer treating it as a, as an accident that they're treating the deaths as suspicious so that's when it kind of it first landed home with us that uh that there was foul play involved and i mean that must be so difficult to hear while you're trying to deal with not only the loss of your sister but but of her two children as well i mean i, I can't comprehend just what that's like to to, to lose an entire family like that, you know, I mean, I, I, you're still probably trying to deal with that in your head at that point, just getting your head around it. Am I right? Or? Yeah. Uh, uh, abs- look, abs- absolutely. It was a case of, like I said, getting our heads around the idea of a tragedy, a tragic, a tragic accident that, that, you know, that, that took away one, one third of our family. Um, But then to hear that there's, it's 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 the they're looking at the the deaths as suspicious. It just took it into it took it into another uh, a place of just pure horror for us um, and uh, nightmarish stuff. Of you know you, you're put into a place of thinking straight away. Who was it? What happened? How did this? How did this uh, occur? What was the circumstances? Um, you know, um, and your your mind just starts going all over the place, and it's it's um, you get into this kind of mindset then of of focusing on the on the things that you can control rather than things you can't control. So I suppose we got in, well one or two of us in the family got into the mindset of dealing with practical things, dealing with media, dealing with funeral arrangements, and all that type of thing. But it was it was so hard to 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 think that uh, another human being would be responsible for those deaths, um, that it was a deliberate act. Um, and for it to happen in, you know, I know it can happen anywhere, but but for it to happen in such a, a small rural place, um, a small community like Wine Gap, um, you know, little, little, little did we know what way it was, it was going to unfold around the perpetrator and things like that, you know. And I, I will get to that, and just in terms of how, um, the killer w- was caught in that. Um, but I just want to, just for people who maybe might not be familiar with the story, although a lot of people would be. I mean, it's a tragedy, many people remember, yeah, because it's it's it, it's not like it happens every day. This type of thing, but um, just to build a picture of uh, of your sister Sharon and and her two children, what can you tell us a, about her and your memories of her? Yeah, well, like Sharon would have been the, the oldest girl in the family, and um, uh, myself and Sharon always got on really, really well. Um, even though there was there was there was quite a few years between us, um, uh, I wouldn't have uh, when I left school, I, I would have worked in America and England and all that, so I, I wouldn't have been at, at home um, a lot. But I'd be in con- constant contact with home, and we would talk a lot. And when I did come home, we'd spend an awful lot of time together. Um, what struck me the most about Sharon was how much she, she actually cared about people and family um, uh, and how important uh, family was to her. It was like the, and her girls were to her, like, you know, when they came along, um, it nearly, like they became her world, you know, and everything she did was was, was for the girls and the betterment of the girls. Um, but and yeah. That was Zara and Nadia Zara, were their names. Zara yeah. and Nadia, yeah. Um, um, like, I remember like Sharon in school, like she was Sharon was well liked in school and she she you know she got she got on with everybody and she worked hard to to provide like she was she was a lone parent and she worked hard to provide for the for the girls. Um uh and yeah, it, and and you know, Christmas was a special time for her as well and, and a special time for for the family, you know, because I suppose over the years I you know, Christmas would be the time where we'd be all be together. I'd I'd make it a point to come home no matter where I was, I'd be home for Christmas. So um that became a that became a big a, a very important uh, occasion in the year and then when 
you know, I when I got married and all that, uh, Sharon would have been very close to me, wife Sandra as well, like, you know, and we would have, would have, we would have went out together and socialised together and, like, we we lived in Kilkenny at the time and Sharon would often come in and stay with us and, like, we'd go out together in town and, and you know, you know, and, 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 and have a bit of fun together and that, like, you know, so, yeah, we got on really, really well. And was there a plan that Christmas to meet up as a family or what was, what was Sharon's plans that Christmas? Yeah, well, Christmas... Christmas morning, the the plan was to meet with mum and dad and go to go to mass, and uh, they were having Christmas dinner at the, um, at at mum's house with my uh, other sister Linda and my brother David, and then on Saint Stephen's Day is the day that we would always traditionally get together, you know, uh, because you know when I got married and all that, like we would. Uh, like I had my own, my own kids and things like that, so we did our own thing on, on Christmas Day, and we, but we'd all we'd always meet up on on Saint Stephen's Day, whether it was out here at my house or at Mum's house. So um, that would that would be the whole family, and that would be the kind of the day that we'd spend spend together over the Christmas, you know. So yeah, that was important. And when when had you last talked to Sharon? Can you remember? I the last I last talked to Sharon uh, on my birthday, the twenty third of December. Uh, yeah, we were myself and Sandra were in Carlo, or just heading into Carlo to get the the last few bits and pieces for the kids for Christmas, and she rang me to make sure that she was getting a, a, a specific PlayStation game for my eldest chap Ben, and she just wanted to make sure that he didn't already have it. Um, you know, so she was just ringing me on that, and she was sort of saying that's grand I, I said he doesn't he doesn't have it and she was relieved that that she she chanced it and got it anyway and it worked out fine but she she was saying that um you know she was looking forward to being up with us on Stevens's day and what what our plans were with, with mom and dad and 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 the girls and things like that you know so yeah little did I um little did I realize that that would be the last time that I'd be I hear her voice you know I just I, I... It's it's a kind of pain that I just I a grief level of grief that I couldn't understand. I mean, was it was it was there a lot of kind of just as as I said just just trying to get your head around it as a family and and I don't I don't mean how did you speak to each other in those days that followed you know and come to terms with it? I suppose looking back on it now, Paul, I was. At the time, I was being being trained as a, as a counsellor and a psychotherapist, so I was getting a lot of support from the college and a lot of support from tutors and a lot of support from, I suppose that 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 fraternity of and and, and that cohort of people that were really kind of rally around me, and I'm very grateful for that support. And then I suppose I was able to pass that on as best I could to the rest of the family. Um. We spoke about the importance of being able to grieve and that, that everyone's grief individually within the family will be different and that's okay. And to allow that to happen um, at, at, at different times. Um, we, I, I, I thought it was really, really important that my eldest son, Ben, uh, who was 10 at the time, um, was and that was, I think that was the most difficult part for me was to try and explain to him the circumstances, um, to try and find the words for a 10 year old to explain to him what happened. Because I suppose you're always trying to protect your kids from the, from the badness that's, that, that can be out there and the evil that can be out there. And, you know, they learn about that quick enough and, and they don't need to learn it at, at that age. But unfortunately it, it was, the starkness of it was, was, was there for him to be seen and, we didn't want to patronize him and we didn't want to fob him off, but we we had to be real with him. And we somehow we found the, te- the language of a 10 year old to explain to him what had happened and the importance of, of him to be able to say goodbye and to go through the ritual of saying goodbye. And, and to this day, he's, he's very thankful f- to us for, for doing that uh, for him and with him um, because it would have been, I suppose your natural instinct is, is to protect and keep them away from all that. But I think, um, I suppose my my training around grief and all that would have would have 
said the opposite you know that you know if he understands he needs to be able to say goodbye um without i suppose we didn't go into a lot of the detail we didn't have to but suffice to say just that they were gone and you know and i that i that's the that's the thing i i i wasn't sure of at the time how how we handle that um but as the years have passed on it has become clear to us and from talking to ben that that was um we actually did it the right way right? it was we, we didn't know we hadn't a clue but we just we just went with our gut feeling that this was the right thing to do God, yeah. i suppose nothing can really prepare you for 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 going through that but but um, no. but even just the additional i mean uh, it sounds a bit silly, but to, to ask this, but just given the fact that it all happened on Christmas Day, and you know, with the rituals, the gold Christmas Day, and the presents, etc. I mean, did any of that really continue, or was that it? It wasn't Christmas anymore, obviously, and it was just, yeah, uh, yeah. All, all, all of that was parked to one side. Yeah, we tried. Yeah, um, I suppose Sandra's family really came to the fore there, and and they kind of took the took the boys under their wing and gave them as good a Christmas as, as they could give them because obviously Miss Effer Sandra weren't really available at that level, do you know what I mean, to, to, around that. Um, so uh, to be honest with you, the, the, the memory of a Christmas around that, I, I don't really have a memory of a Christmas because it's, it's, it, it didn't happen, it didn't exist. And, and um, I, have no, I have no memory of a Christmas that year at all. It was just everything that we had to deal with one thing after another or new years or anything like that because you know i mean you know we, we lost we lost the guys on, on on christmas day like you know and we they we, we buried them on, on new year's day so you know that that time it took a long time for and it's still it's still not uh or never will be the same you know it, it can't be but i suppose we've learned over the years that we have to try and uh make it make make it something for uh, our own kids like my my youngest chap now is, is nine like you know so christmas is still important for him and we focus on, on trying to to give him you know a, a, as good a christmas as anything but it's always always tinged with that with that sadness and grief as well which we we, we try not to show but we, we we mark in our own in our own way like you know it's always there yeah um if I could speak about Brian Hennessy for a moment, uh, Brian Hennessy is the man who, uh, postman, ultimately found uh, guilty of of the murder of your sister and, and of her children. Um, it, it the the crime was entirely random in that he didn't know your sister, um, and it appears to have been an opportunistic crime for him. He he, he and and it was one of a of a sexual nature that then turned to murder. Um. And uh, all of those details, obviously, you didn't know at the time. But when did when did you first get the indication? You know that this was random. That that that, that this person, the person who committed this, you know, didn't know your sister. There was no connection there whatsoever. Yeah. Um. I suppose when we when we got when we got news of the arrest. Um. I think it was around the end of the first week beginning of the second week of january that uh our liaison officer told us that there's there's been an, an arrest and it was uh based on the dna evidence that had been gathered uh from from everybody in the in the parish really and once we heard who it was um it was kind of shocking because my parents would have known uh his parents and you know the my mom and his mom would have went to school together and all this type of thing so the families would have known each other gone way back uh in in that small community and like brian hennessy and sharon they they did know of each other they, they didn't know each other well but he would have known where sharon lived he would have known that she would have been alone and vulnerable um, given his given his occupation am i right well, just, absolutely would, yeah. yeah 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 and um so you know to to hear that it was it was him um and i i didn't know i don't i didn't know Brian Hennessy. i didn't i didn't know him at all um but my mom and dad mom and dad would have known him a bit a bit better than that and uh yeah they would have they would have described him as always being a bit of a loner you know a bit of 
Um, bit of a a guy who kind of kept to himself would have been very fond of the drink and things like that. Like, but um, yeah, once once we got the got the news that it was him, it was um, it was a, quite a lot to take in that it it was someone local or you know someone that that some of the family knew you know that was yeah that was uh and am i scary. right in saying that 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 it emerged that 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 brian was actually at the scene or had revisited the scene uh, after the fire am i right in saying that um uh i i haven't heard that part but what what i do know is that he spent a lot of time down there between the the deaths of Sharon and the deaths of Nadia and Zara. There was three to four, maybe five hours had passed between Sharon's death and his his plan to light the fires. And he he came home, and uh, it became clear then as uh, it was. It was um, it was reported, and uh, the guards told us as well that he came home and he's he knocked on the door about just before seven o'clock in the morning, and his mum let him in, and he went to sleep on the couch. As if nothing had happened. Uh, yeah, just just fell asleep, just went to sleep on the couch. Um, I don't know. Did he go down and visit after? Uh, I know he was at the funeral. Yeah, I'm sorry. Maybe I'm, I, I, I just remember I, I was reading before we came on here. Maybe it was just a report I was reading, but he supposedly, uh, like many onlookers, had been standing around the scene, supposedly, or was spotted there. And only then subsequently someone said, oh, that's the guy, you know. But but obviously, if you haven't heard that, then I would imagine it's not true. I, I just It's something I just... I read. Maybe I've read it wrong, but yeah, well, that's that's what I'm. Yeah. Well, he could he could he he could well he could well have been Paul. Um, I I I I'm not aware of that, but I I am aware that he was he was there at the funeral and even before, and even after the funeral, like he he'd be making inquiries to people that had, would have been talking to the guards, asking, you know, any progress being made. You know, do they have someone in mind and all this, like you know. So, and even when he was even when he was arrested, I think it was on the seventeenth of January he was arrested and question brought in for questioning um he denied everything and he kept asking the guards like you know is there you know is there, you know is there anyone else in the frame for it or to have any more information or or anything like that like you know he just he just kept denying that he, he had anything to do with it you know even though the dna evidence was uh, was 100 percent, you know and it's it's incredible given his efforts to to you know to to try and tarnish destroy the scene obviously by setting the house on fire you know thankfully dna if it wasn't there, I mean, there would be no conviction, um, possibly. Yeah. No, we'd have we'd have nothing. No, we would have nothing, Paul. Um, and I, I mean that that's why, like, we're 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 forever going to be grateful to the to the three guys that that took the girls out, and they've always you know wanted to remain anonymous. They don't want any thanks. They don't want anything like that. They they just said it was the right thing to do, and it, and I know we're we're obviously forever in their debt and we're forever grateful to them but the strangest thing too is that is that when the house did actually collapse in on itself the the only room that stayed standing was was sharon's uh, bedroom where the where the bodies were everything else had collapsed in on itself that was the only room that remained standing if you don't mind me asking and and stop me if i i don't want to get graphic or anything like that but i want to just i want to mention just the depravity of this because it wasn't as though he just set a, a house on fire. I mean, as bad as that is, um, you know, he, he went there with a motive in mind in terms of what he wanted to do with your sister and then uh, took her life in, a, in an egregious way and then calculated a way to destroy the scene without really thinking about the children in any capacity and, and obviously that, that fire claimed their lives. If you mind me asking just about when you were when you first found out about the entire nature of of what happened to your sister in those last moments and just if what it was like to hear that i suppose yeah um yeah I, i've 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 spoken about this before paul and i've, I've like i've spoken on about it fairly fairly often at, at, at this stage and i i think i think uh it's always difficult to talk about but i think as well you know i i think people need to to know you know the reality of what happened here, and I think the value to know the depravity of 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 this, 
because it's it's relevant to I suppose what we're campaigning for as well as around sentencing and maybe we can we can talk about that another later on but yeah so it's when when the guard liaison officer uh, came to us and spoke to us where he said that the um, had, had gone the focus had gone from an accident to it being uh, suspicious deaths and the reason for it had become suspicious deaths is that because there was uh, no smoke in Sharon's lungs. So that would have meant that she died before the house was set on fire. Uh, but also that um, she had been sexually assaulted and, and raped and she had been strangled. And um, it was only really in the, the coroner's court, I'd say it was maybe 10 months after the actual court itself in Dublin that we we got the details of uh, how how badly assaulted Sharon was and it left no doubt you know because uh, you know some of the some of the Hennessy family and all that and some of others were putting out this this idea that it was consensual in some way um, the coroner herself Dr Mary Cassidy said Sharon's injuries would indicate that there was a hundred percent certain that there was no consent involved. Um, so then, then we realised uh, that that Sharon had died first, and then it became clear that the fires uh, they said that Sharon had died around one a.m., two a.m. in around that time. And the fires hadn't been set until about maybe five thirty, six o'clock. So he had spent all that time at the house thinking about what his next move was going to be and how he he would preserve himself. Is this this just come into self preservation mode at this stage? So he put uh, his own life first of all above Sharon's, and second of all above the two innocent girls that were sleeping in the room. Uh, he knew they were there when he lit those fires and he walked away uh, after setting those fires and went home and slept. Uh, and I think that indicates the the type of a a, a person that we're, we're, we're discussing here today to, to, to be able to do that, to... It's the behavior of a psychopath, really. It's 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 absolutely the behavior of a psychopath, you know. Um. Yeah, he could have. He could have just walked away. Uh, but he decided to take two more lives, and yeah, and the the Irish state, as we're getting, and now we're going to talk about sentencing shortly. But the Irish state uh, has only recognized one of those lives, and. That's where we feel there's a lot, a lot of injustice, you know. Let, let's talk about that because obviously it got to the stage of a trial and, and um, as you said, the, the, the DNA convicted Brian Hennessy. I know he denied it, um, but uh, the evidence is clear as day. But uh, he, he was he was convicted of all three murders and he was sentenced, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, initially to three um, consecutive life sentences. He appealed that in 2010, and that was changed. The, the judges agreed uh, with with his. Well, he was able to get that down to a concurrent life sentence, uh, which means that he's just really serving one life sentence for three murders, hmm. and that's something I know you've campaigned um, against and and for for many years. But I just ask you about that. I mean, obviously, that was hugely painful for you as a family um, that that happened. Yeah, and and at at the time, Paul, when that sentence was handed down, um, uh, we were very, I suppose, very naive and, and ignorant of the law and the justice system and how it worked, uh, because we we were only starting to go through it really at that stage. Um, so I I gave a victim impact statement. Uh, it was only on the morning of the trial that he changed his plea to guilty as 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 the judge said like at the 11th hour 
and he took that into consideration. And and yeah, the sentence he got was three life sentences, uh, uh, two to run consecutively, i.e. one after the other. And when that sentence was handed down, there was there was a kind of a, you could feel a kind of a, an atmosphere in the in the courtroom. There was a kind of a sort of a, a sharp intake from uh, the 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 journalists that were present and the, the 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 guards that were present and the public that were present, because it was highly unusual for that set type of sentence to be handed down. And I actually had an opportunity to talk to Justice Barry White. Uh, in in the in um, the green room at a at a, an interview we were doing in, in RTE, and I asked him, did he mind me asking the question why he felt he needed to hand down that sentence, knowing quite well that it would be overturned on appeal because Irish law, you can, you you can only have one life sentence, no matter how many people you kill. And he said to me that he felt it was the right sentence to hand down, and in. In, he couldn't hand down any other sentence in, in, in clear conscience for himself. So I thanked him for that. And there was guards, detectives, local guards from Callan, Wyngap, Kilmagany area who were at the trial and they were visibly moved by the, by the sentence. There was a kind of, it's done. A lot of the, the detectives came over to us as a family and like they were visibly emotional and were emotional with us. Um, and after talking to some of them after, they said it was so important we got this right fee. It was so important that we, you know, we were so, we were so afraid that something might happen, there'd be a technicality or something. We just wanted everything. We wanted every I dotted and every T crossed to make sure you, you, you got this this justice and this 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 sentence and at the time we had no idea that that sentence could be uh changed i know it could be appealed but we didn't think that would be changed we we, we were we were green on in the law at, at the time we didn't realize that you could only serve consecutive sentences for crimes like that uh but needless to say you know, we've we've learned a lot since around the justice system and how it works or doesn't. Did Did you think he could just appeal his conviction at that point? Was it, but not not the uh, not the sentence itself? Yeah, I thought to be something like that that he he uh, maybe appeal the the sentence itself. But to 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 get a phone call, um, to get a phone call, I think it's about six months later. I'm I'm not quite sure, but. I, got a, I remember I was driving up to see my uncle in, in Fermanagh and I got a phone call from a local guard to say that Brian Hennessy's appeal is after being heard and he was successful in his appeal. And my first reaction was, what appeal? No one told the family there was an appeal going on. We had no idea that there was an appeal going on. And if we did know there was an appeal going on, we would have liked to have been there to hear it and hear the argument and maybe argue ourselves. But, you know, to say, to think that... You know that has been three lives have been taken, and he's serving one sentence for that. And sorry for repeating myself, Paul, but I say this in every interview: not one state official or not one official from the justice system is able to look me in the eye and tell me which one he's serving that sentence for, because it nullifies, in our eyes as a family, it nullifies the existence of the other two people in this state, and that's not right. They lived a life, a life that was deliberately taken, and it's just it's not being acknowledged, and we don't think that's good enough. Yeah, and you know, sadly, as I'm, you you are no doubt aware, um, there have been many families who have been left dissatisfied by sentences in this country and by the way the justice system works in general in this country, and um, you've been involved with Advic, so you've 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 been involved with other families who've gone through similar scenarios so you're well you're well versed as you say now in in the justice system um and i suppose we could probably talk for hours about what's wrong with it but but in it, that's that's certainly one thing obviously anyway you know in terms of concurrent sentences and that but i mean what do you think can be 
what do you think is the the main thing that needs to happen if there is any real change that you'd like to see happen now what would it be okay so if if, if we bring it back to it, its basics that anyone that's found guilty of murder okay so murder is the deliberate taking of another person's life it's a deliberate act okay um our argument is that if that's a deliberate act the person knew what they were doing and they knew the the consequence of their action so therefore there should be provision in the justice system for what they have in england and other uh western civilizations of whole life tariffs if i could give the the very recent example of wayne cousins who got a whole life sentence for the murder of sarah everard in england which is i think quite rare there even as well yeah it's yeah. quite rare there mm-hmm. but the the judge and the judiciary had that option mm. to give here they don't yeah and we hear on the news and we, we read in papers whatever like you know so, such and such like even in, in Hennessy's case Brian Hennessy uh, sentenced to life no life in prison mm. that's not accurate that's that's not uh, an accurate representation of the sentence the sentence is since the the change i think in only a few months ago the change is that or the sentence is he has received the minimum 12 year sentence before he can apply for parole of which it used to be se- it used to be 7 am i right used to be 7 now people will argue like you know this it's very rarely that people get out after 7 it has happened they say the average life sentence in Ireland is anything between 18 and 20 years. So that's that's an average, which means there are, there are murderers getting out earlier. Now remember, these people deliberately, knowingly took a life and they knew the, the consequence of their action. So what we're saying is that we are actually asking for the ad- adoption of the, uh, the tariff system like they have in Britain, where a judge has the capacity to hand down minimum tariffs so starting with say 25 30 35 and what's called like we spoke about the whole life tariff people argue here like around minimum sentencing and and the, the pros and cons of it we already have it here there's there's minimum sentence for firearm offenses and there's minimum sentences for some drug offenses and also the um uh the 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 capital murder of, of police I think it's 40 years. Yes, it is. Yeah, 40 years. Yeah. 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 So uh, no disrespect to the Gardaí. Okay. But they are citizens of this state. So is Sharon. So is Zara. So is Nadia. Everyone's life is the same. You know, and I, I understand I understand the guards have to, are putting themselves in danger uh, every day. I understand that. But still, it doesn't minimize the the worth of a life yeah and it's worth mentioning uh, I, you'll be able to tell me how many times but ever since uh, Brian Hennessy's been jailed every single time that he gets to apply for parole you as a family have to write a letter to the parole board basically giving your reasons as to why you think this person who murdered your sister and, and her two children shouldn't be re- be released and you've got to do that every time that he applies mm. for parole how many times have you, have you had to do that have you had uh, we've done it twice, oh. twice so far. Um, so uh, we we did it after. Uh, I think we did it after four, and we did it. Or sorry, we did it after seven, and we did it after. Uh, just after doing it there, the in the last couple of months as well. Oh, this year. Yeah. Well, well, I I have it ready, because I know what's coming because the. The prison service have told me that his his parole is going to be up. Now they can never give you an accurate day or month because there's a backlog. So with I I have I have everything ready because I learned from the last time. You know you could get a phone call to say uh, his parole is is coming up next week. You know anything you need to send in send it in. You have a week to think about it. <laughs> oh, that type of thing, yeah. But it's it's you know it's. It's strange that we're put into that position of having to think about it and having to uh, plea 
with uh, a parole board uh, who are tasked with this, uh, which doesn't have a representative from any victims organizations or victims uh, charities or uh, campaign groups um, who are making these decisions based on reports from prisons uh, and the engagement of the prisoners around rehabilitation. Now, as I would love to know what does that rehabilitation look like? How is, what is the program that they have to do? And if they don't sign up to do it, uh, does that affect their, their sentence or their parole? Um, but it also begs a bigger question, can someone who's capable of doing this um, I suppose ever be be rehabilitated. Um, I would argue someone like Brian Hennessy, who was you know able to take three lives, come home and fall asleep on the couch, have Christmas dinner with his family, and then go and have Christmas dinner with his girlfriend's family, uh, and act like nothing happened. Uh, if if my family, if Sharon the two girls were murdered. In England, Brian Hennessy would be under a whole life tariff right now. And then, then we would be in a position to try and move on with our lives because what happens when you have parole, uh, and remember, it's every 12 years, but then it can be every year or two after that. So the state is compliant in re-traumatizing families because we are we are being dragged back to the very start again. We are dragged back to the trial. We are dragged back every year, every two years. So, <coughs> excuse me, the justice system as it is at the moment is stacked in favor of the perpetrator as regards resources and uh, supports. There is no resources and supports for the victims and their families unless it's organized by individuals uh, themselves. We are left to our own devices. We got no help from the HSE. We got no help from the state. We got nothing. Yeah, and the killer gets everything, as you say. It, it's yeah. extraordinary. But when you, look at, when, you look at, when you look at it this way too, Paul, as regards supports and, and, and where the focus is, if you compare 50 million being spent every year on... Um, legal aid, which if that's what it costs, that's what it costs, that's fine. And you compare that to what's being paid towards families uh, for for counselling and therapy, grief counselling or trauma counselling, trauma therapy, it's pittance. I know Advic, when I was when I was with them, I'm no longer with them, but when I was with them, they were getting something like 28 to 29,000 a year to try and Jesus. To, to try and do that, you know. I'm, I'm part of an organisation called SAVE, where we're looking at sentencing and victim equality. And we were asking for a, we were asking for a, a department or, a, or an organisation set up by the state that is completely and utterly focused on providing supports for families of, of violent crime. You know, therapeutic interventions, uh, trauma interventions, um, supporting through the court system, supporting through the justice system. Um, you know, I, I don't think that the scales uh, uh, the scales of justice are equal. I think they're very much in, in the in the favor of the perpetrator. And, you know, and I think that, um, you know, our our rights as citizens of this country are, are, you know, are as important, but they're just being ignored. For what reason? I don't know. I don't know if you want. I mean, I, I would imagine it's quite a lot of what we're talking about, but I don't know if you want to share anything in particular that you're that you're saying in your your letter to the parole board this time um it's it's very much like like the one I, I i sent the last time and and the one i sent the last time started with uh the absurdity and the the grotesqueness it's grotesque that we as a family have to write to you to to implore you not to release brian hennessy after uh, I think it was seven years when I was writing it. Um, and basically, I'll just say, uh, here here I am in this, very, or here we are as a family in the very same situation as we were at that, that time, writing to you again, appealing again 
that this man is not released into society. You know, to, to ask a family to do that every year or two. I, I don't think people understand or definitely the justice system or the, the prison system doesn't understand the impact that that has. Um, you know, because like my parents, they're not spring chickens anymore. And the anxiety and the the stress that this puts on them is unbelievable. And, and that's why I say the state is compliant uh, in re-traumatizing families. Mm. Um, and I think it needs to be looked at and needs to be addressed. You've mentioned obviously whole life sentences. Do, so do, you, do you think anybody like, well, let's say not Brian Hennessy, but that a, a, someone convicted of murder, did they, did they deserve an opportunity to go for parole? And if so, when? If not seven years, 12 years, when? would be the do you think is there any real time in which it's appropriate you know yeah i suppose if if we again all i can all i can do is use examples from abroad because there, there's no examples i can i can give from here obviously so if if i was to mention to you maybe the the jill Mar case in australia in 2012 or the catherine going case in wales in 2013 i think it was where in those two cases the, both of those uh, murderers uh, who their their actions would have been very similar to what happened to Sharon okay um, so the sentences handed down in both those cases one in Australia one in Wales was uh, I think it was 39 years in the Gilmar case uh, that he would have have to serve 39 years before he's even considered for parole and same with the Catherine Going case that uh, uh, Clive Sharp would would have to serve 36 years before he was even considered for parole. Now, that sounds like a very long time, and it is a very long time. But remember what they did. It, they have found been found guilty of murder. They have been found guilty of deliberately and knowingly ending someone's life. These were not accidents. These were deliberate actions. And and for me, they're saying, oh, the law can't be that black and white. Well, I think it can be when it comes to murder. It's a very clear definition. It's a very clear definition. And I mean, I know, as you say, he he admitted his guilt at the last minute. But did you ever really get any indications of uh, of genuine remorse from him, an apology you know, even now, are you being given any indications? Not that anyone might not necessarily tell you, but, oh, he's doing very well in prison and he's done all X, Y courses and he's, you know, always a changed person. He's a model model prisoner is a term I hate, but it's uh, often used mm. in the media. Um, you know, mm. uh, would any of that stir you at all in terms of your opinion on him getting parole or anyone like him getting parole? I doubt it somehow, but <laughs> just just curious. You know. hey, no, I know, and yeah, look, it's, it's a fair question, Paul. But yeah, look, the the answer the answer to that is no, because I think that, you know, we 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 said it ourselves earlier on, and and uh, I I I think you said it, and I would one hundred percent wholeheartedly agree with you. Like these these are the actions of a psychopath. Can someone with psychopathy be rehabilitated? It's a very interesting question. I don't know if they can. I doubt very much that they can. Are they capable of changing their ways? Or is it too ingrained in their in their psyche or psycho? I don't know. It's a very interesting, that's probably, a, that's a very broad sort of philosophical question or a psychological question. I don't know. But what I do know is that the system as it is right now is not conducive for families to heal. It's as, It's as simple as that. And the state is abdicating its responsibility to quite a large cohort of, of people in the state that need help. They need help to be explained what's going on through the courts. We need a system like England where anyone that, God forbid, anyone experiences homicide in the family, that they are allocated a worker who's trained to liaise work with the guards, work with the courts, work to provide counselling services, 
when it is appropriate. Um, work with the families with information. Um, you know, work with the families around parole. Work with the families of, you know, what they need to do around that. Um, but because you know, as soon as the trial is over, uh, you're left to your own devices. You're you're cut loose. The state cuts you loose. That's it. And everything is about the perpetrator and their rights. Yeah, I mean, here we are still talking about his rights because you've got to write to the parole board and all that. I mean, it's, it's, it's extraordinary, really. But, I mean, what, what, if I could ask you, just you know, in terms of, I mean, because you've gone through a, a drama that I can't possibly imagine, and most people couldn't possibly imagine. But how, I mean, you're you're involved with Save. You've 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 done Advic, and you're you're very articulate on all these topics. You're very well educated on all of it, partly because you've had to live it, obviously. Um, but how have you been able to, I suppose, stay involved in uh, in that way um, rather than, I mean, no one would blame you for nearly kind of wanting to shut yourself off from all of that. How, how have you done that? Um, it, it would have been, yeah, there, there are times where I, I'd say to myself, uh, enough, enough now. Things, things are not going to change. Um, basically, you're, you're banging your head against a brick wall. But then I remember the last phone conversation I had with Sharon. And that always brings me back to stay going. Because I know someone will listen eventually. Someone will take family seriously eventually. Um, I, I, could not ha- I couldn't have it on my conscience or I, I wouldn't be able to sleep at night, Paul, if... if I stopped trying to be her voice and Nadia's voice and, and Zara's voice because how they have been treated after their death is not good enough. Uh, the state has let them down. The state has let this family down and many families like us. And I think for for me personally to to stop talking about it i would be i wouldn't be doing their memory any honor um i don't want any other families going through what we went through as regards feeling not feeling like they've gotten justice and and, and look the hardest thing about this is that on on average there's, there's going to be another 65 or 70 families every year facing into what we we faced into that's that's 65 or 70 families who eventually will be left high and dry by the state. You know, just 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 move on and get on with it. You know, it's not good enough. It's not good enough at all. Far from it. And for whatever reason, successive ministers and, and department heads or whatever are reluctant to, to grab this and really engage with families and sit down with them across the table and say, what can we do to make things better or easier for you in your recovery from this trauma? I've spoken to so many families who've said the same thing as you and have almost begged, essentially begged in interviews, you know, I'm available, Minister for Justice, I'll sit down with you any day of the week, you know, I've all said just give me five minutes in the room with, be it the Taoiseach, the Minister for Justice, whatever. And it's all just seems to be falling on deaf ears, you know. Very much so. I, I've I've met with every Minister for Justice, uh, except the current one. And I'm hoping to, to, to write to her soon and, and meet when when it's more, I suppose, when it's more suitable for everybody. Uh, I, I look forward to that time. But I have to say, every minister that I've sat sat down with and spoke to, while I felt listened to, I felt heard, I felt their, I felt their empathy and their sympathy. I I'm not questioning for one second their their genuine feelings towards uh, families like like ourselves and and when we talk to them and. You know, I, I, I'm not questioning that whatsoever. But what I always walked away from, because you're you're not just meeting the minister, you're meeting the department heads. You know, 
legal eagles who have, you know, who are trying to protect the system and, and sort of the status quo, everything is fine, you know. Really, how much power does the minister have? Questionable. Um, but like I said, I don't doubt their, their genuineness and, and their empathy and their sympathy. But I do feel there's a little bit of, uh, you can't help walking away feeling a little bit patronised and a little bit, oh, we've, we've met with you now, thanks very much, be on your way. Nothing changed. It's time for action now, really, you know, I suppose is what I'm saying. Well, it's funny, just in the in the wake of the uh, Sarah Everard murder and, and uh, it kind of became topical as well, there was a young woman, um, Nadine Lott, she was murdered and uh, that case was up. There was a sentencing hearing. So we, we had done a couple of pieces in the star and like that, families such as yourself calling for whole life sentences here and so I put it directly to the minister's spokesperson said, what is the minister's position, personal opinion even on the, you know, on, 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 a, on a whole life sentence or on that concept. And what I got back was just a whole load of non-answer, you know, the average life sentence in this country is 19 years. Um, yeah, but does the minister favour whole life sentences, you know, or the concept of it or whatever, just didn't get an answer. So, I mean, that won't come as a shock to you, obviously, but it, it, it says a lot, you know. It does. It does say a lot. I mean, even like I've, I've argued the case as well. God forbid we ever have a situation like they had in, in, in Norway with Anders Breivik, where there's multiple, multiple murders. Yeah. How do you what sentence? Happens? Yeah. How do you sentence that? Yeah. You know. Do you say to all the, you know, God forbid, all the families that could be involved or would be involved hypothetically? Uh, no, we're going, we're going to get, uh, hear his parole here and after twelve years. Do you know? That's the reality of it. Like. Yeah. No one would stand for that. Yeah, you're right. No, and I, I would think too. I, I'd be very interested to see if there was. If there was sort of a, a poll done in the morning, like, I don't know, one of these famous Red Sea polls or whatever other company or whatever, around whole life orders or whole life sentences for for murder, like, how many, you know, what would the percentage be in favour? I would imagine overwhelmingly in favour, but, you know, but... Uh... It's never it's never been done. I haven't, I haven't seen one. I haven't seen one yet. So... You know that would be a, that would be a powerful thing to do, I think, and to present that to government and say this is what the people that you're governing are asking for. You know where is democracy then? So look, yeah, that's a, a different, uh, maybe a different podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um. Oh well, look. Uh, thank you for speaking to me, John. Um. Uh, I, Not at I, all. Not at all. I think. As I said to you, and I'm sure like many, many people have said to you, you know, oh, I can't imagine what you're going through and, and all that. And it sounds, it probably doesn't sound like a whole lot to you. It doesn't mean a whole lot to you in that regard because, uh, yeah, it really, it really no one can possibly understand what you're going through in, in, in that sense. But uh, I just hope that um, that this fella never gets out, personally speaking, but it, it seems to me that the state could never allow someone like that to, to get out, at least any time soon, you would hope. And, and I would imagine that you feel that way too, that, that uh, mm. somewhat secure in that, at least for the next couple of years, at least, there's no chance, or am I wrong? <laughs> I suppose nothing is, nothing is impossible it's, with the system we have. But it's the, it's the uncertainty. You'd like to think so. But look, just to say like this this is going to be part of my life's work for as long as I'm around um uh, I'm, I'm not going to stop I'm, I'm 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 going to keep try and keep the pressure on as much as I can uh, and keep advocating for for people that are that are in this position or, or have been uh, are and unfortunately will be um uh, I just think as a state we can do better we're better than this you know um and I just think that you know when you look at not just the justice system, but lots of the other systems that are that are, um, I, I would I would argue not fit for purpose. And people talk about change, 
and it, it doesn't happen we, as you know i think it's we need something like a, a maybe like a national forum to look at how we are doing things and how things can be done better and how you can actually truly represent citizens of the state and not just uh, you know uh you know be uh there's a better way of doing things i think and, and look i think we're smart enough to try and figure that out you know absolutely well, well thank you john thanks for speaking to me no problem paul anytime thank you